0: Andrew Womack Ministries presents this message titled, Satan's Hindrances to Prayer. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. Last night we talked about faith, and I don't want to bring your hopes down, but I want to give you some wisdom. Because a lot of people get their hopes knocked out from under them because they don't understand some real basic things through the Scripture. What I'd like to talk about today is about Satan's hindrances, about how Satan hinders you. And a lot of Christians are not even aware of this. A lot of Christians think, you know, what's the deal with the devil? Well, I guarantee you, the devil's alive. He's not well, but he's alive. Amen. He's sick and he's getting worse every day. In Second Corinthians chapter two, verse ten, it says, To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgive anything, forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant Of his devices right there you could turn that verse around and say that if you are ignorant of Satan's devices Satan will take advantage of you Satan will get an advantage of you so it's important that we learn and not be ignorant of Satan's devices let me also say this it's important that you don't get demon conscious and get to the point where you exalt Satan over everything else that's wrong and there's a lot of people that do that when I first started realizing that there was a real devil I remember I'd walk into a place and everywhere I'd walk in, I'd look in a chair, you know, or an empty spot and I'd say, I bet there's a demon over there. And I, Every time a person had a twitch, if they had an eye twitch or, you know, some, something peculiar with them, I'd look and figure out the demon. Boy, and I was a demon hunter, I could see a demon like that. I could spot a demon a mile off. Well, that's wrong, because your attention is focused on the devil. And there's a lot of people that, because of this kind of thinking, they get fearful over things. Like, we've had a lot of people come up to us and say, I've heard you move to Manitou Springs, the occult capital of the world. <laughs> yeah, we did, amen. I praise God for it. That's the place where the believers ought to be, right in the middle of the devil's crowd, amen, destroying it. We're breaking the power over that, amen. I'm glad it's been believing that. There's a lot of Christians believing for Manitou Springs. Don't go to confessing it's the devil's place. Go to turn around and confess it. I had a friend that went to Rock Springs, Wyoming, and they said that there was something on the 60 Minutes television program about how corrupt, Rock Springs, Wyoming was. And when they went there, they began to have problems, and they began to have some uh, uh, things come against them, and so they wrote it off, well, this is the occult capital of the world. It's because of all of the demonic stuff going on. And they just sold it over to the devil. It doesn't matter. The Scripture says, if I make my bed in hell, lo, the Lord is with me, amen? And it just doesn't matter. I don't want you to get demon conscious to the point that you get fearful. And if a demon jumps up in front of you, rebuke it in the name of Jesus and command it to leave. There's no reason to be fearful about Satan, but at the same time, it's just as deadly to ignore it. There's no reason to have a fear of snakes. Like my sister-in-law has such a fear of snakes that one time when she was in school, a boy played a trick on her and he found a double-page color picture of a rattlesnake in a magazine. And she was turning around talking to a friend. And he put that in front of her and when she turned around she put her hand on that and looked down and she screamed and knocked the table over and fainted right in front of everybody. And I saw her one time step on a slug and she threw up for two days because she got so scared over there. Well that's wrong, but at the same time don't get so familiar with a rattlesnake that you sit there and play with them and get killed by it. You see there's a lot of wisdom to be used and it's the same thing that we're talking about. We aren't supposed to be fearful of the devil, but you aren't supposed to be ignorant of him lest he should take advantage of you, lest he gets advantage of you through your ignorance. So I believe there's some things that need to be said about this. Out of 1 Peter chapter 3, in verse 7, it says, Likewise ye husbands dwell with them, this is talking about the husbands dwelling with their wife, according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers... Be not hindered. And right there, the Scripture again says that your prayers can be hindered. A lot of people are completely unaware of this. What do you mean our prayers can be hindered? I pray, now, I'm going to say what a lot of people are teaching, and that is that if I pray and if I ask God for something, it's going to come to pass if it's God's will. I had a Baptist preacher one time, in Children's Texas, tell me, he said, Now look, He said, if somebody needs to be healed, they're going to be healed whether you or I pray for them or not. If it's God's will, they're going to be healed. And his thinking behind that was that God's will comes to pass, it doesn't matter what anybody does about it. But you see, that's not a truth. Satan is alive, and if you're ignorant of his devices, Satan will stop your prayer. The reason I'm pressing this point is because a lot of people blame God for their prayers not being answered. They say, why didn't God answer my prayer? Why didn't God move and supply this thing? I prayed and I believe. why didn't God do something? God's faithful. God moves every time we pray, and God is not the one that's been guilty of our prayers not being answered. God answers everything that's asked according to the will of God, but we got an enemy, and a lot of Christians, because we're ignorant of it, we allow Satan to hinder and to stop our answers to prayer and then blame it on God. But that doesn't happen, amen? We have a part to play in God's answers coming to pass. And as far as a person being healed, whether you or I pray for them or not, that's not true. God has already healed everybody that He's going to heal. By His stripes we were healed. First Peter 2.24 says that. And it's already done. But you see, we have to believe and we have to receive. The Scripture says we have to lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. God is not laying hands on the sick. God's people are laying hands on the sick and they recover. We have to speak to the mountain. He isn't speaking to the mountain for you. You have to rebuke the devil. God does not rebuke the devil for you. And so many people, Lord, rebuke the devil. Lord, get the devil off my back. God can't get the devil off your back. He gave that authority and power to you. It's his power, but it's flowing through you. And if you don't find out that we've got an enemy and begin to rise up and take your rightful place, your prayers will be hindered. Your answers can be stopped, and it's not God that's at fault. Amen? Let's look at another scripture where, where uh, Paul said this, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 1st Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 18 wherefore we would have come unto you even I Paul once and again but Satan hindered us and right there the scripture says Satan hindered Paul and if you'll continue to read this and compare it with Romans chapter 1, and also I believe it's chapter 16, two more times Paul talks about how he'd been hindered coming unto those people, and you find out that for three and a half years after Paul had determined to go to these people, he was hindered for three and one half years, and Paul wasn't a slouch. He was operating in the power and the anointing of the Holy Ghost, and he was still hindered. Now, there's a lot of reasons for hindrances. That's what I want to talk about this morning. How is it that Satan hinders your prayers? But I also want to make one point, and that is, even if you're operating perfectly in the will of God, and if you're operating in the anointing of God, Satan can still hinder your prayers under certain circumstances. Not completely, but he can slow them down. And sometimes there's a need, when you've operated in the perfect faith of God, to learn how to stand, and stand in patience, and confess, and just stand pat. Because Satan may be hindering not through you but through other circumstances and through other people. And you have to learn to grab hold of your answer to prayer and stand knowing that God's faithful. God moved. If you aren't seeing a manifestation, it's not God who's at fault. It's Satan that's fighting against you. Amen? So we need to be aware of this. We need to know and get Satan's number. Amen? Satan is a deceiver. Satan lies lies to us. And that's the way that he comes against us. First of all, let me say that the way that Satan hinders us and comes against us, he has no power to stop anything. Satan cannot stop God. Amen? I want to make that clear. Satan cannot stop God. God's already defeated Satan. But God has made us a joint heir with him. And that means that it's not just only a battle between God and Satan, because you see, the Lord has already fought Satan and the Lord stripped him. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 says that he stripped him and made a show of him openly, triumphing over him in, in it. God's already won the battle. But we have now been made a partaker of that same power and that same anointing, and now the body of Christ is taking the victory that the Lord's already bought, purchased for us and bought, and we are taking it to the devil. We are fighting him. And the battle now is between the Lord's body and Satan. Anybody see that? Satan cannot overcome God. Satan's already been defeated, but God has made us joint heirs. And if Satan can deceive you, and if Satan can get you to side in with him and disbelieve God, then you can stop God. Satan has no power, but you have the ability and the power to stop the prayers of God. Stop the manifestation of God's answer. Everybody follow that? Some people looking at me like a mule looking at a new gate on that. I guarantee you, you need to recognize that God will not overstep your will. Again, let me explain one other thing. A lot of people think that, well, God does whatever he wants to, and there's a teaching about God being sovereign, that God is in control of everything. God is going to do as he pleases, and nobody can change it. I even had a person write in. I have only had three critical letters out of the two years and something I've been on the radio. And I had somebody just this last week write in and jump all over me about... uh, They said they agreed on most things, but they disagreed about the sovereignty of God. They were saying that Satan was beating God. They thought that's what I was saying. I'm not saying that Satan's beating God. I am not saying saying that God is not winning out and that his purposes are not coming to pass. God has an overall control in what God has willed and ordained is going to come to pass. Amen? But we are not pawns we do are not made to conform to everything that God wants us to be. God's perfect will does not automatically come to pass. His overall will will come to pass simply because he's so great and he's so powerful that he is going to get it done if it takes one person to get it done, amen. He'll raise up one person and destroy all the works of the devil. But God's will does not just automatically come to pass. To verify that, 1 Peter chapter 3, we were there just a minute ago. Let's look at this scripture. I think it's probably Second Peter. Chapter three, verse eight says, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years. And a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some man count slackness, but is long suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now this tells us, just as clear as can be, what God's will is. It says that he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So it is not God's will that one single person go to hell. And yet, Jesus himself said, many more shall go in by the broad gate unto destruction than the few that will go in by the narrow gate unto everlasting life. So Jesus himself said that God's perfect will is not coming to pass. There are more people going to hell than there are to heaven. And the reason for it is is because we have a free will and because we have an enemy that is out deceiving people and God is not forcing you to go to heaven. It's God's will that everybody be saved, but you have a free will and you can stop God's perfect will from coming to pass in your life. You can go to hell if you want to and God will protect your right to go to hell. Did you know it? God would stand there and he won't allow anybody to make you go to heaven. Nobody can make you go to heaven. I heard a story about a guy that tackled a man one time. He weighed about 300 pounds and sat on him and said he wouldn't get up until the guy accepted the Lord. (laughs) And the guy was drunk and he sobered up and finally accepted the Lord. Now, I mean, that may be possible, but if he did, it's because he finally put his will in agreement with God. You can't sit upon a person and make them accept the Lord. Did you know it? God doesn't work that way. God will defend your free right to go to hell if you want to. So the part that I'm saying is, God is sovereign. God can do what he wants to, but brothers and sisters, he's done what he wanted to do. He bound himself by this word. Hebrews chapter 6 says, it is impossible for God to lie. God is never going to violate this word. And he said, you choose this day. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. Behold, I set before you this day, life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, you choose life, that both you and your seed after you may live. God gave you the choice. And you can stop God's power from manifesting itself in your life Satan can't make you go to hell he can tempt you he can do all of these things but I don't care if you're the worst demon possessed messed up person that ever lived on the face of the earth you can set your will in agreement with God and all the demons out of hell can't keep you from going to heaven amen and it's the same thing with everything else in the Christian life Satan is a factor Satan tempts us Satan lies against us but you are the only person that can stop God You are the only person that God does not overstep your will. God overstepped Satan's will. Satan didn't want to be defeated, but Jesus stripped him. Amen? Jesus defeated him and overcame him. And so the whole um, basis of Satan's attack against us is nothing but deception. He's coming against you, and he's lying, and he's bullying you, and he's making you think that, well, the devil made me do it. The devil didn't make you do a thing. The devil tempted you, and you did it. The devil's made you think that you have to be sick. And you see, he's laid down a well-planned well uh, strategy against us. And we have learned since the time that we are a little kid how to be sick. We've been taught how to pamper certain things. We've been taught that when it becomes a certain uh, time of the year that it's flu season and that you're supposed to get sick. And, and we've learned that, you know, when you get 60 years old or something, you're supposed to start going downhill. And we started confessing all of these kind of things. Brothers and sisters, that's just not so. It's a lie. It's a deception. And if we'll get the truth, we can stop Satan from doing those kind of things. His warfare against us is nothing but deception and it's important that you realize he cannot make you do anything unless you submit to his lies. Amen? Well, that's powerful. That is really powerful. You don't have to be sick today. You don't have to be in trouble. And somebody might say, but now wait a minute, you can get so demon-possessed that you just have no power. Satan has got such a hold in my life, I can't do anything about it. That's not true. Let me show you an example of this out of Mark chapter 5. In Mark chapter 5, this is the instance about legion, the man who had the legion of demons that were living on the inside of him. Verse 1, it says, And they came over unto the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gadarenes. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no man could bind him, no, not with chains. Because he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces, neither could any man tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs crying and cutting himself with stones. But when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshiped him." Now I want you to notice this, Satan does not worship Jesus, amen? Now Satan will mock Jesus, Satan will do a lot of things, there's a lot of religious people that are making mockery about Jesus. But Satan does not worship Jesus. This is not what somebody reported that he said that he did. This is the inspired scripture saying that he ran and fell at the feet of Jesus and worshipped him. Now the man was so demon possessed that when he opened up his mouth, immediately the demons began to speak and they cried out and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of the most high God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. And so that man was so demon-possessed that even though he was trying to worship Jesus, he was demon-possessed, the demons started speaking through him. But the point that I want you to see is that this man who had a legion of demons, and I've heard a legion estimated anywhere from 1,000 up to 10,000 demons. I don't know how many it is, but anyway, he was demon-possessed. This is the worst case ever recorded in the Bible. And that man ran and fell at the feet of Jesus and worshiped him, and as a result, Jesus cast those demons out of I him, and that man was set free. That man did have a will, and regardless of how far gone you are, your will is still functional, and Satan cannot dominate it. He can get you to such a point that you need help. Maybe you can't get free by yourself, but you can at least begin to start resisting. And I've learned this in dealing with people who are demon-possessed. We used to go find people that were demon-possessed and think that we'll just cast the demons out against their will. I'm going to get this person delivered. They need delivered. They need Jesus. And that's a good attitude, but guess what? It doesn't work that way. If that person is enjoying the demonic stuff or if they're deceived and if they are entrapped in it, if they're bound by fear and if they refuse to break loose and resist that stuff, you can't cast the demons out of somebody who wants them because God will not violate their free will. The only exception to this is when a person withstands the gospel. And if a person was to withstand the gospel, say for instance if there was a demon-possessed person that came up here and was making mockery of the service today and if it was turning people away from the gospel. I have the right like what Paul did in I think the 16th chapter of the book of Acts where he let a woman follow him for days and for days and for days and say, these are the men of God that show us the way to eternal life. And everybody in the town knew that she was a soothsayer and that she was demon-possessed and all of this, and here they were saying that these are the great powers of God. Man, that would destroy your ministry in a second, wouldn't it? What if Gene Dixon was to come on the radio and say, everybody go here, Andrew Wommack. Man. It would destroy things in a hurry. Well, see, that's what was happening. And Paul, he said that that happened for many days and finally he was grieved and he turned about and he commanded those demons to come out of it. Paul allowed that situation to go on for a long time. He did not want to do it because God does not usurp people's will except in judgment. Now, understand that? In judgment, God will violate your will. You may not want to go to hell. But if you've lived for the devil and if you've refused to accept his salvation, there comes a time that in judgment, God will violate your will. Actually, he's not really violating it because you already chose who you wanted to serve. You chose the devil over God and he's just holding you to it. But the, in judgment, God will violate a person's will. If you, the only time you violate a person's will is if it was really standing against the gospel. And I'd say you'd have to have a definite word from the Lord to do it because when you bring judgment upon a person, that's a strong thing. That is a... That is a very strong thing. Once you bring the judgment of God upon a person, that's a whole different matter. You don't do something like that lightly. So, without any exception except that one, you will not, God will not violate a person's will and you just can't go cast the demons out of a person. And I've learned that regardless of how demon-possessed a person is, they have a will and they can begin to resist the devil. If nothing else, repeat after you and begin to confess that Jesus is Lord. They have some degree of will and you need to realize that. Amen? So the point that I'm making through all of this is as we start talking about ways that Satan hinders you, don't think that you just cannot control this. You have authority and power over the devil. God gave you authority, and you don't have to let the devil mess over you and destroy your life. Amen? That's the truth. I don't care what situation you're in today, you do not have to be there. You are there because of deception. You are there because we've been taught to expect that this is the way that it's going to be. We're there because of a thousand and one different reasons, but you don't have to be there. You don't have to be anything except above only and not beneath. Amen? Praise God. I like that. Let's look in the book of James, chapter 3. Now there's going to be a, uh, we could talk about thousands of things that Satan uses to hinder you, but I'm only going to hit some of the ones that I think are the strongest problems. There's a lot of individual reasons that you're going to have to just let the Lord show you. We're only going to touch on some of the basic ones. But the whole third chapter of the book of James is talking about your tongue, about what you've got to say. And Proverbs chapter 18 verses 20 and 21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. Our tongue is probably one of Satan's strongest weapons against us. He has deceived us and he has taught us how to use our tongue in a wrong manner. And we've been hung by the tongue. There's a book out by that title. Any of you ever seen that? Hung by the tongue. And that's exactly what happens. We go to confess in negativism. We go to confessing contrary to God's Word and the Scripture. There's a law of God that says that you shall have whatsoever you say. In Mark chapter 11, verse 23, you shall have whatsoever you say. And because we have not known the truth of God, Satan has come in and deceived us and people have been confessing contrary to God's word and we've been snared by the words of our mouth. That's Proverbs chapter 6, verse 2. You're snared by the words of your mouth. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. We've been speaking death out of our mouth and then on the other hand asking God to heal us, to set us free to do this and we wonder why isn't God moving? Well, brothers and sisters, you've got to realize that if we don't get our talk, in agreement with what we've prayed, then Satan is going to take your very words and he's going to hold them to you and he's going to destroy you and minister death to you right out of your mouth. There's a lot of people, you see, that pray like, say, for instance, a woman praying for her husband. And they say, Lord, save my husband. He needs to be saved. He is the sorriest, rottenest, most no-count, ungodly man that ever was. That guy drinks, he cusses, he's a carouser, he is an ungodly person. He's not worth spitting on. And you see, they go on and just read off all of this stuff, and then after 20 years, I had a lady write in just this last week. I've been praying for 20 years and I hadn't seen any difference in my husband. He's still and she told me all the stuff that he was. And she wonders why her prayers haven't been answered. Well, you see, she's hung by her tongue. Satan hinders her prayers because even though God wants to move and answer her prayers and save her husband, there's a law of God that says, you're going to have what you say. And that not only works in the positive realm, it works in the negative realm. If you're going to confess contrary to God's Word, you're going to have what you say. And so you see, Satan has taken her very words and has hindered her prayers and kept them from coming into manifestation, and she was writing me saying, why doesn't God answer my prayers? Now, how's God going to answer it? He would have to violate His Word. He'd have to become a liar and come in and say, well, no, that's not true. You aren't going to have what you say. God told us in His Word, brothers and sisters, how it's supposed to be done. And if we're ignorant of these kind of things, and if we go to confessing contrary to God's Word, you stop God's power from manifesting itself in your life. So you've got to realize that one of the greatest ways that Satan hinders us is with our tongue. And I don't care if it's popular. I don't care if it's the way you've been brought up all of your life. We're going to have to start changing our thinking and our talking, and we're going to have to start confessing like God's Word says. It's popular. If you want to make a good conversation with somebody, go to talking about politics. Go to blaspheming Carter and saying that old knucklehead Carter, look what he's been doing. Look at this and look at that. Go to talking about, it. you can always get somebody to side in with you on something like that, and you can make friends with the person. That's normal. But I tell you what, the Bible says you're not supposed to speak evil of the ruler of your people, that their ministers of God does for good, that you're supposed to uplift them, and you're supposed to pray for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and sincerity, which is of great price in the sight of the Lord. That's what the Scripture says. And you may be able to make up a conversation and strike up a conversation with somebody, but you are releasing death out of your mouth. And not only is it going to affect the United States, not only is it going to affect the President, but there's another law of God that says, Give, and it shall be given unto you. If you go to bad-mouthing somebody else and speaking death about them, guess what's going to happen? You're going to reap it back, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that you meet withal, where, wherewithal it shall be measured unto you again. You go to speak in evil of people, you're going to reap it back. You go to speak in strife, strife is going to come back at you. And then we wonder why our prayers aren't answered. Maybe you've been bad-mouthing the president. Maybe you've been sitting here, you know, you can speak negativism in a lot of different ways. You can go to speaking in negativism on, in small things. Some of you probably think this is unimportant, but I know that there's a lot of you that sit there and like every time you wash your car, say, well, I know if I wash my car, it's going to (laughs) rain. That's not necessarily sin, but did you know what? It's a negative attitude. What you're saying, in effect, is that I got the blight on me. If I do one thing, it's going to turn out the other just as sure as true. If we go have a picnic, it's going to rain. You see, that's a negative attitude. It's making you think that regardless of what you do, it turns to dirt. Whatever you do, it goes wrong. And you are building, you're speaking words of death out of your mouth. Maybe it's a small thing, but you're speaking words of death right out of your mouth. And then you wonder, why aren't my prayers being answered? And the whole time, you're giving Satan something to work with with your mouth. People are always saying, well, that just tickled me to death. Or that scared me to death. That's a bad confession, amen. I'm not going to confess something scared me to death. That's negative. And some people might say, oh, that's a small thing. Well, let me say this, that if you can't bridle your tongue, if you can't bridle a small thing, you won't be able to release your faith for the cancer and those other things. Amen. Yes, it's a small thing, but you need to get to where you take care of the small things. A person that can't believe God for a cold can't believe God to heal cancer. And that's a problem a lot of people make. Well, that's a small thing. I'm not going to worry about that. Let's go on to the big things, believing for somebody to be raised from the dead. You've got to start with the hangnail, amen. You've got to start with the small things, and you've got to start watching the small words that you speak. There is a tremendous amount of negativism that comes out of our mouth just every day about things. And we need to stop that. That's what this whole chapter is about, is about your tongue, how that you can set on fire the whole course of nature with your tongue. And brothers and sisters, it's happened. It's happened. We have set on fire the whole course of nature with our tongue, and we wonder why our prayers are being hindered. Satan's taking advantage of us through our tongue. And also down here in this same chapter, this is talking again about your tongue. It says in verse 8, But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing, My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either the vine figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, Glory not, and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work." Now, boy, that's a mouthful. This is one of the strongest statements in the Bible. It says, where envying and strife is, there is confusion. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 tells you, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the Lord. So confusion is direct demonic activity. Where envy and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. That's the Word of God. It says if you let envy and strife in, you open up the door to confusion and every evil work, every demonic power. Now, if you'll put this together with the scripture that we started from, Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, you'll find that verse 10 says, To whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. And then he says, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. It's talking specifically about forgiveness and strife. You look at the scripture we read out of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, where it says, Likewise, you husbands, render unto your wives due benevolence, as being heirs together of the grace of life, lest that your prayers be not hindered. It's talking again about strife, a marriage relationship. If you'll look at a scripture, let's look over in Mark chapter 11. We read Mark chapter 11, verses 23 and 24 quite often about faith. And they are good scriptures on faith. But to give this balance, you need to read verse 25 and 26 also. It says, and when you stand praying, that's telling you how to believe. Verse 24 says, whatsoever things you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. That's a powerful scripture on faith and we teach a lot on that. But it goes on to say, and... When ye stand praying, forgive, if ye have aught against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if ye do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. Well, that's another strong statement, isn't it? Again, it's talking about if you've got strife in your heart, brothers and sisters, you can kiss your answers to prayer goodbye. Not that God won't answer, not that God wouldn't be willing to answer, but strife opens the door to confusion and every evil work. You're going to have so much demonic activity coming against your prayers that they won't work. And you see, there's a lot of faith people today that are hearing the faith message and getting turned on and going out and praise God. I'm going to believe for a thousand dollars. I'm going to start believing in prosperity. I'm going to believe in healing. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. They're confessing all the right things. They're doing all this and they're fighting like dogs at home. And then they wonder, where's my problem? What's wrong? I've been confessing my seven basic confessions every day. I've been doing this, I've been doing that, and they wonder where the problem is. You need to realize that Satan is an enemy. He goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He can't devour you. He can't devour just anybody. He seeks somebody to devour, somebody that's stupid enough to open up the door through strife and through envy and through all of these kind of things. And if we're allowing strife in our life, it will kill us in a hurry. Brothers and sisters, the thing that Satan tries to do in a body situation is put strife in it. If he can get somebody to strive about the way Wayne combs his hair or the way he dots his eye or crosses his T or doing something like that, that's a small beginning, but he'll enter in and begin, confusion will begin to come. And every evil work. Man, you need to watch what you do. You need to quit striving. Strife will kill the power and the anointing of God. It's one of the most deadly things in the body of Christ. And brothers and sisters, we can't afford it. There may be certain times that even though you love a person, if there is just strife and if they're ministering strife, you may have to just separate. The Scripture says to live peaceably with all men as much as lies within you. Live peaceably with all men. But if a man refuses to be peaceable with you, you need to separate yourself from strife. The Lord did that. He separated people that he prayed for from the doubt and the unbelief, the strivings and the complaints of people all the time. He took people apart from the multitude and prayed for them because strife and unbelief of other people can affect you. And you need to realize that as a body of believers, we need to get together and come together and get love flowing. That's the reason God's ministering so much about love is because love cast out all that fear. It cast out the strife. It overcomes. The Scripture says love covers the multitude of sins. And then in Proverbs, it says love covers all sins. Love covers that strife and it'll do away with it. And we've got to start operating in love one towards another or you'll be hindered. Let me share one other thing. You can be operating perfectly yourself. In the love of God, you cannot have strife towards other people, but did you know that we are still hindered by the fact that our body is fragmented? you all know that? Now, I'm not saying that means that you're going to be in defeat. No, you will be above, only, and not beneath, just like what the Scripture says, but you will have hindrances simply because the body of Christ is not where it's supposed to be. you all believe that? Let's look over in 1 Corinthians, chapter 5, and I'll show this to you. In 1 Corinthians, chapter 5, this is where he's talking about a man that committed incest in the body. That is, that he had his father's wife to his wife. He went in unto her, and Paul rebuked him. And he said, this kind of thing is not even mentioned among the unbelievers. And here you are, a group of believers. And he says, you have not mourned rather that this man would be taken away from you, and he said, Now I'm commanding you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one unto Satan, for the destruction of the flesh, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Now let's take that scripture in context, okay? It's true that leaven is a picture of sin, and some people take this and apply, well, you can't allow a little bit of sin in or it'll just begin to grow in mushroom." This is talking about not an individual. This is talking about a body of believers. Don't you know that a little bit of leaven will leaven the whole lump? Don't you know that a little bit of sin will eventually spread and it will affect this whole body? And so right here is what he's talking about is that even though the rest of the body may have been seeking the Lord, he says, you can't just ignore this guy over here. It's got to be dealt with because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little bit of strife over there will affect this whole body. It will affect the whole thing. Y'all can see this too because you can come into a service and you can be praising God. Things can be going just great and all of a sudden somebody stand up and begin to speak strife out their mouth. Or they can begin to speak just a few words of doubt and unbelief. And I mean you can feel the Holy Spirit just be grieved. You can feel a quenching upon the whole thing. What's happening? Death and life are in the power of the tongue and that little bit of leaven will affect you. You need to realize, praise God, that you can be affected by other people, and we need to put a high priority on the body coming together and getting this body to function, not just individuals, but we need to learn our place in the body of Christ and begin to function as a body of believers. Find our place and get in and try and build up the body of Christ, amen? Let me share that the body of Christ isn't within these four walls either, amen? The body of Christ is all over this town. It's scriptural to have one body of believers in one place, amen? And I've heard enough from Wayne that I know that that's what he's seeking for. He prays for the other ministers in this town that are seeking, you see, to preach the Word. And that's good. Brothers and sisters, we're going to come together in one body one of these days, and it's not going to be after the Lord comes. It's going to be before We need to come together because even though we may be operating powerfully, we need the agreement of our brothers and sisters. If they're in strife, if there is division there, then it's going to hinder us to some degree or another you look on the day of Pentecost the reason the power came it says that when the day of Pentecost was fully come they were all with one accord in one place now some people might think well that doesn't mean anything it does you get everybody in one place in one accord one accord according to first Corinthians chapter 1 verse 10 means that we are speaking the same thing of the same mind and of the same judgment now that's not sloppy agape amen <laughs> That's not just sitting there saying, well, I love you despite. That's coming together and not only saying, I love you, but agreeing. Getting the truth and agreeing from God's Word, being of the same mind and of the same judgment. When we get perfectly united in one accord like that, I guarantee you, you'll see the Holy Ghost shake the place again. You'll see cloven tongues of fire. You'll see 3,000 people get saved in one day. Miracles happen because the people were in one accord. Psalms chapter 133, the very last verse well, the whole, the whole chapter says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. For there the Lord, the last verse says, For there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. God's commanded his blessing upon the unity of his people. Amen. When you get God's people together in unity, there is an anointing that flows that won't flow any other way. And brothers and sisters, we're going to have to start standing against strife and realizing that it doesn't matter if you have the best singing that there is, if you have the best preaching that there is, If you have all of the signs and the wonders and the miracles, if you don't have unity and love flowing among the body, you are going to allow envy and strife to come in, confusion and every evil work. You'll see the Word of God just knocked out from under people. We've got to start getting in unity. You've got to start bridling your tongue and quit speaking evil of people. Amen? If you don't love me, it doesn't matter. Love me anyway, amen? Just love me because God told you to. I don't have to be perfect for you to love me. Praise the Lord. And you don't have to be perfect for me to love you. We need to start loving one another and we need to start bridging the gap. I am not talking about ignoring problems. There's a lot of people that do that. There's a lot of people that see a partial truth in this and they say, well, praise God, I'm not going to go speaking against anybody. And so somebody comes along that's blaspheming the name of the Lord and saying that Jesus is not divinity, that he was a God or like a Mormon, right? Or Jehovah Witness. They come along. Preaching false doctrine, and nobody will stand up and speak against them because, well, I don't want to speak against anybody. Now, if you're going to do that, Jesus operated in strife because Jesus said, "Yo, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you vipers, you whited sepulchers full of dead man's bones." That's pretty strong, isn't it? I've never said that to anybody. A lot of people <laughs> think, a lot of people think I'm mean, but I have never come close to saying anything like that. There is a time for a rebuke. If you love a person, I mean love them with a godly sincerity, you've got to rebuke them. Now, there's wisdom to use in that. But if you truly love me, and if you saw me fixing to do something that was going to kill me, and if you say, well, I love you too much to say anything to you, you're just a liar is what you are. Let's look at a scripture over in Leviticus chapter 17. This is a a really good scripture. This is part of the old covenant, the law that God gave, and it was a command that he issued, Leviticus 17, or maybe it's not 17, maybe it's chapter 19, verse 17, there it is, Leviticus 19:17. it says, thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart, now see that's what we're talking about, right, is love, not hating your brother, but loving him, and then the rest of the verse says, thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. You can turn that verse around and say and be scripturally correct that if you do not, under any circumstance, rebuke your brother and if you allow him to get in sin, then you hate your brother in your heart. A lot of people say, oh, but I love them too much to tell them the truth. What they actually mean is, I love myself too much to suffer the rejection that might come if I was to counter them and they reject me. It's actually selfish love. If you love a person with all of your heart, man, you will do what it takes. If it means them turning their back on you and hating you for the rest of your life, you're going to tell them the truth because you love them and you want them to know the truth. Amen? Romans chapter 12, verse 9 says, Let your love be without dissimulation. Anybody know what dissimulation means? Boy, I tell you, if I ever heard the Lord speak to me, it had to be the time that He told me what dissimulation meant because I was riding down the road. And I thought of that scripture, and I had not the foggiest idea of what dissimulation meant. And the Lord told me it meant hypocrisy, falseness, a lie. And I went home and looked it up in the dictionary, and those are the exact words. Amen? I believe that's the Lord. Dissimulation means that it's a lie. It's hypocrisy. It's false. So let your love be without any falseness or hypocrisy in it. The rest of that verse says, abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. I was brought up under a teaching of sloppy agape, is what I call it. Now there is an agape love, but there's a lot of people preaching the agape love of God that are saying, oh, don't ever offend anybody. These people that believe that the baptism of the Holy Ghost is of the devil and come up and tell you that, just smile and be sweet and show them your love and get in the closet and pray for them and God's going to change them. Well, that's deception, brothers and sisters. God is going to change things through His Word. God does everything that He does through His Word. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, that we are born again by the incorruptible Word of God. Faith only comes by the Word. Faith does not come by love. Faith works by love, according to Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. Faith and love have to function together, but faith comes by the Word. And I don't care if you show them love. I don't care if you smile and they're just sweet to them and shaking your head. That won't produce faith. The Word's going to produce faith. And if somebody comes up and blasphemes the Holy Ghost in front of you, now there's some wisdom to use. Don't get up and jump on them. You sorry, ungodly thing, you're going to hell. Don't you know you blaspheme the Holy Ghost and jump all over? That's not right. But you can sit there and in love. Say, brother, I love you, but did you know that the Bible says, like 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 39, covet to prophesy and forbid not to speak in tongues? That's a command from God, and I'd exhort you to be careful. Amen. (laughs) Now you can say that in love. You can say it in love, but you see you planted a seed. You planted a seed right there, and that's a true kind of love. When Jamie received the baptism of the Holy Ghost, she was taught don't ever say anything about it. They'll see it. So as a result, she didn't say anything about it. And they did see it. Her family asked her, what's happened to you? And her sister said, there's something different about Jamie. Jamie just smiled and didn't tell them a thing. And as a result, she missed a golden opportunity to plant God's word and as a result they still haven't received I'm not saying that condemned, condemn Jamie she's confessed all of this I'm saying that we've made mistakes not knowing that God is going to have to even if he answers my prayer he's going to have to find somebody that's bold enough to speak the truth and come across their path and plant the good word of God brothers and sisters it is a deception of the devil to make you think that you can accomplish God's will by not speaking the truth The truth is what sets us free. Not the truth by itself, but the Bible says the truth in love. And I have to emphasize that because I've seen some people go out and take the Word like a club and just beat people in the face with it. Man, I'm going to show you. If you're doing that, you're going to cause a lot of trouble. The truth has to be spoken in love. The Word is not a club, but it is a hammer is what the Bible says out of Jeremiah. It will break in pieces. You've got to use it, but you've got to use it in love. There has to be a balance of these things. Amen? So anyway, we got off on this by talking about strife and talking about how that we need to operate in love, but a God kind of love, a love that loves another person enough that you'll tell them the truth even if it means them rejecting you. Now that is a true, godly kind of love. Another thing that will stop strife is if according to Ephesians chapter 4 it says that we need to start growing up in him speaking the truth in love. We need to get to the point where we speak the truth in love and we reach a place where, brothers and sisters, we have such a relationship that if you're upset with me and if you're mad with me, instead of going to tell somebody else about it, tell me about it. Tell me about it in love. And I tell you, there may be some problems when you first do this. But if you really make a commitment that I love you and that we are going to eliminate strife and that we're going to come together, you'll see this start stopping strife. Because did you know Satan is a deceiver? The Bible says out of Revelation chapter 12 verse 11 that he's the accuser of the brethren and he's continually accusing us. I don't know about Wayne. I'm saying this just from my experience but probably this applies to him. I've seen it happen to every minister I know of that when you're up ministering you see somebody that looks like death warmed over like they don't like what you're saying and boy you just begin to get all kinds of inputs about I wonder what that person's thinking. I wonder this and I wonder that. And you know, I found out there was a lady in Childress, Texas in this body that we were in that looked terrible every time you preached, She looked like she was just mad at you ready to rub your nose in the dirt. And after it was over, she'd come up and say, boy, that's the best thing I've ever heard. She'd just praise God. And I began to learn that you can't go by how a person looks. And I found out that most of what Satan's doing is nothing but accusations. I'm sitting here, somebody didn't say hi to me the way they were supposed to when they walked in. And I begin to think, I wonder what's wrong with them. I wonder if I did something wrong. And immediately, all these accusations begin to start coming. And if you'll sit down and think about it, I've done this. You can think about it long enough that by the time you get through thinking about it, you're ready to go punch them in the nose for the things that you have imagined that they've said and done. And it may not have any foundation. That's the way Satan works. He's an accuser of the brethren. And one way you can stop that is if you reach a point, where you have taught about what God's kind of love is, speaking the truth in love, if a body will function that way, then you can reach a point where when somebody begins to say, you know, Wayne just really doesn't like you. And if the devil begins to tell you that, you can sit there and say, I reject that, because if Wayne didn't like me, he loves me enough, he'd come tell me. And you don't have to sit there and wonder, I wonder what they're thinking. You don't have to imagine. You can throw those things out and say, I know that, brother. He's got a commitment. He's going to speak the truth in love. And if he doesn't love me, he's going to tell me he doesn't love me. Amen? Or he's either going to repent and get it straight. Now, there are certain times you don't go tell a person some of the things you've thought about him because it's nothing but high imagination and lies of the devil. You haven't acted on it. You haven't spoke it. Bury the thing. Get rid of it. But if you have caused trouble and if it really has been manifest back to that person, there comes a time of coming and asking forgiveness and restitution. But if you'll reach a point like that, you'll find out that, man, Satan won't be able to lie to you and bring up all these high imaginations because you know. You say, I know those people so well that if they don't like me, they're going to let me know. And I don't have to second guess them. I don't have to sit here and imagine it. Boy, there's a liberty among that. You can be comfortable with people like that. Did you know it? and I've got some brothers that we have disagreed with but I have complete liberty and freedom around them because if they don't like me I'll know it they'll tell me what they don't like and we share it in a good way and there's a complete open relationship and brothers and sisters the body of Christ has to come into that strife is one of the biggest hindrances that Satan uses against the body and in homes I'm telling even about Christian homes spirit filled homes homes that are here represented today there is striving among husband and wife and it'll kill you especially among husband and his wife, according to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, your prayers will be hindered if there is strife among you. You cannot afford strife. It is deadly. It's worse than cancer. You wouldn't allow cancer in your home. You'd go to fighting it some way or the other. But brothers and sisters, a lot of Christians allow strife. They fight on the way to church, come in and sit down and just try and patch it over and forget it and go on. It's just normal. Everybody does it. If you're using the as the stomach turns as your standard of what a Christian home is supposed to be like, you're going to wind up in a mess. That is not God's standard. God's standard is that we are not supposed to have strife. And brothers and sisters, you don't have to have it. Again, I'm saying strife is a method of the devil. And strife does not, or let me say, Satan cannot make you strife. Just because it's normal and that's what's happening with other people, it doesn't have to happen with you. You do not have to have strife. You may not get there overnight. Maybe you didn't get into all this strife overnight. It may take a while to get it out. But you are going to have to start getting rid of it. You need to start humbling yourself. And most strife arises from nothing but self-centeredness, pride, I. They did me wrong. I deserve my rights. Well, you stand up and get your rights and split your home. You know what? You'd be better off to bite your lip and have injustice done to you the way Jesus did. Jesus showed His love towards us in that He took all of the rebuke and all of the scorn that people could throw at Him and He sat there and loved them. And as a result, 2,000 years later, man, there's the greatest revival going on that's ever hit the face of the earth because of the love that Jesus had. Amen? Brothers and sisters, you taking the matters into your own hand and you getting justice and you defending yourself will split your home. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Amen. You let God handle your marriage problems. You let God begin to work on them, and I guarantee you it'll work. When Jamie, if she ever speaks back at me, and if we ever get to arguing over anything, I guarantee you, I I could handle Jamie. But when I see her start praying, that just is unreal. She goes to praying, and I know that she's praying, and boy, the Lord gets the pressure in me, and I can't stand that. Something's got to change. It'll change me in a hurry. I'm not about to go argue with God. I might argue with Jamie on some occasions, but I am not about to go argue with God. Amen? And so we need to realize that most of the strife in a home comes from just nothing but I. Self-centeredness, the fact that I refuse to bend. They told me to take out the trash, and I'm just tired of getting told to take out the trash. Amen? You need to get your thinking straight. I've seen the trash cause arguments before. That's not right. Amen? We need to realize that that's a deceit and that that's a deception of the devil. Amen? So that's one way. I'd say that probably that is the most important way, or the, or the biggest way, that Satan hinders our prayers is through strife. And brothers and sisters, we need to start putting a high priority on operating in love in our homes, in our church, and, in, and towards other people. Amen? We need to watch what we've got to say. Let me share another thing. We're just hitting some of the basics but this is another thing that confuses a lot of people they take Mark chapter 11 verse 24 whatsoever things you desire when you pray believe that you receive them and you shall have them so they go to praying for their husband or they go to praying for their wife and they say I claim then that they are saved baptized in the Holy Ghost operating in the word of God and bless the Lord it's going to happen and then they say it, rock on and it doesn't seem to happen and happen, happen well, now there's a lot of reasons it may be the fact that you aren't praying right Maybe you're praying that and then speaking negative about them like we talked about. But say that you've done everything right and you know that you have and you know that you've really operated in faith and you've seen that same measure of faith produce healing in yourself. Healings of cancer, you've seen it change. You've seen miracles happen and yet in this instance it doesn't seem to work. Here's another hindrance to your prayer that you need to realize and that is other people are a hindrance to your prayer. They have a will and when your prayer is involving someone else, you can't pray. Mark chapter 11, verse 24. Did you know that? That scripture does not say whatsoever things you desire when you pray, believe that they receive them and they shall have them. That's talking about you believing and you receiving. You've got authority over your own life and when you're praying for yourself, you can say, I have prayed, I know that I receive and I shall have it. But when you're praying for somebody else, you need to realize that they have a will and that they can accept or they can reject. And you need to realize that Satan can hinder your prayer through other people, not only through you. Now, when I learned this, I learned it in the area of finances. This is one of the biggest ways to explain this. Because when I started believing in the Lord for finances, I thought, well, praise God. It's God's responsibility to get the money to me. I don't care how he does it. And I'd go to praying for finances. And my finances were hindered. I was one of the problems. Now, see, here's another hindrance. You've got to act on the Word of God. I thought, well, I'm a minister, and a minister's supposed to receive his uh, uh, living through offerings. And I refused to work. And I wouldn't work. Nobody could make me work. I mean, we went to the point, we went without food two and three weeks at a time. I mean, without anything. And part of that time, while Jamie was pregnant with Joshua, two weeks without food one time in her eighth month of pregnancy. That's pretty dumb. But that's where we were. It wasn't the best way, but our heart was right. I just didn't know. And God blessed us in spite of ourselves. The Scripture says in Psalms 116, verse 7, that the Lord preserveth the simple. Amen? And I got preserved. (laughs) But I was a hindrance to myself. The Lord finally showed me that the Scripture says out of 1 Corinthians chapter 9 that those that preach the gospel should live of the gospel. I wasn't preaching the gospel. I was called a minister, but I wasn't preaching to anybody. We had maybe two people a week that I'd minister to that would come to our Bible study or something. I wasn't preaching the gospel full-time. I couldn't expect to live of the gospel full-time. I should have been out making tents like Paul did. And the Lord finally showed that to me. And when I started acting on it, God started supplying our needs in abundance. Now that I am full-time preaching the gospel and I don't have time to work, God supports us full-time. Amen. And I learned that I was a hindrance to myself because I wasn't doing exactly what God told me to do. The Bible says if any man doesn't work, neither should he eat. If I'm not working preaching the gospel, I need to be working doing something else. Amen? And if there are any of you here that are ministers and think that you're just going to have God supply your need and you sit there and study and study and study and not work, you need to realize God told you to be working preaching the gospel. If you aren't to a point where you're preaching yet, get out and work. Amen? I had a good friend. They had a good attitude towards that. People were always asking him, can I preach in your tent? Can I use your tent? And Dwayne did just tell them. <laughs> he said, where are you when I go to set that tent up? When I'm driving all of those stakes and working. He says, anybody that's not worth coming out here and setting up this tent isn't good enough to preach in it. Amen? And he had a point. There's a lot of preachers that wouldn't dare set their hand to that. It's below their dignity. They're supposed to be in the Word. Man, if you aren't willing to sit there and work a little bit to get the gospel out, you aren't willing, You aren't worthy to be preaching it. Amen. But see, I didn't know that, so I was a hindrance to myself. And I'd go to praying, and I found out that other people were involved in my finances. God was going to supply my need through other people. He wasn't going to counterfeit money to supply my need. Amen. So one time that I saw this, we had prayed and believed. We did everything, everything that I knew of through God's Word, to receive our finances. We agreed. I didn't operate in fear. I wasn't worried. I wasn't taken care of. I wasn't disturbed. And yet we were three and a half weeks late on our finances. We had prayed specifically for $100. Well, for $120. $100 to pay our rent and $20 to give, all fathers. And we had agreed. And we were late. My landlady gave us a nasty note about us being late. I apologized. I said, I'm sorry. I said, if I have to, I'll go to work and make it up to you. But I said that we will get it to you somewhere or the other. And I was really upset over that. And finally, one day, we got a call, and we went out and met this lady, talked with her, and anyway, she gave us a check for $120, exactly what we'd been believing for, three and a half weeks late. Now I didn't say anything to her except just thank you, but in my own self, I was wondering, now why? I know that that's the Lord. It's, it, it's to the penny what we prayed for. Why is it three and a half weeks late? And as they continued to talk, they started saying, said, well, the Lord told me to do this four weeks ago when I got my paycheck, but you know I didn't want to do anything in the flesh. I didn't want this to be me. I wanted to make sure it was the Lord, so I've been sitting back checking this thing out for four weeks. And I found out that God answered my prayer, you see, before it was due, but because that person was new in the Lord, it wasn't anything wrong with it. It just stays new. They didn't know how to respond to it. My prayer was hindered through another person. Boy, when I saw that, the next time our rent came due, I prayed and I believed. And when I saw it down to the day before our rent was due, I said, Lord, I'm not going through this again. I know that you've spoken to somebody. And I started interceding for them. And I started praying in tongues and groaning in the Spirit that whoever it was God was going to use wouldn't get caught up in greed or in problems or in stuff like this, that they'd be obedient. And within two days, one day late this time, we had our rent supply. Amen? That's quite an improvement. Praise God. And I begin to learn that, you see, Satan can hinder through other people. And there's a lot of people that have been praying for a lost loved one, for a husband, for a wife, for a child or something like that, and they're wondering why. I've stood on the Word and I've commanded them to come in and it had not worked. You need to realize that those people have a free will and you can't make them get saved. And I'm going to say something here that I hope doesn't ruffle anybody's feathers, but it needs to be said. You can't say beyond any shadow of a doubt that your husband or your wife will get saved. You can't command them to be saved. There's a lot of people who say, well, wait a minute, the Bible says in, Ma- in Acts chapter 16, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house. It does say that, but that doesn't promise you that your house is going to be saved. That promises you that if you'd believe on the Lord, it would work for you, and it's the same thing work for your house, amen? Same thing will work for your whole family. It's the same for you, for that Philippian jailer, and for the whole family. God is not going to make your family get saved because you're a born-again believer. To verify that, you can look, let's look at a scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. It says, If the unbelieving depart, this is talking about the unbelieving partner in a marriage. If the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. And then he's saying, This is the reason that you ought to stay with your mate. For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? Or how knowest thou, old man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? Paul is saying, say, stick with them as long as you can. If they depart, let them depart, but you stick with them, because how do you know but that you'll save your wife? Or how do you know but that you'll save your husband? Now, poor old Paul, he didn't know that you had to have your wife and your husband saved. Because he was saying, how do you know? Maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. Now, I'm not trying to instill unbelief in you and tell you that, well, you know, there goes my believing for my husband or for my wife. I can't believe for them now. I can't make them get saved. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that you need to realize you can't force them to be saved, but you can, through intercession, present such a powerful witness to them and such a strong intercession that 99.9% of people in their right mind would respond to it. Don't you think if your husband or your wife was living with Jesus that they'd be touched by it? And you can get to where you live so much like Jesus and radiate so much power that I guarantee you, I believe you can with authority say, I'm praying for my husband or for my wife and they're coming in. But you also need to leave the option open that they do have a free will. And if that person was to harden themselves and reject it, you can't make them get. say it is possible that they might reject it. But how do you know what they're going to do? You pray for them just like they're going to receive it. You believe and intercede. But this will stop a lot of people from getting into despondency and saying, "Why aren't my prayers being answered?" I stood on Mark 11:24. You need to realize that other people enter into your prayers and you cannot force another person to receive. Other people enter into your finances. Some of you that have businesses, you need to start interceding for the people that are going to buy your product. God is not going to prosper your business by just sitting there and having money flow in through the ceiling or something. He's going to have people buying your product. If you're a salesman, sit there and start believing. I believe that God gives me favor with people. I believe that God gives me power to get wealth, according to Deuteronomy chapter 7, so that he might establish his covenant in the earth. I believe that I have a mouth of wisdom which all of my adversaries will not be able to gainsay nor resist. That's what they said about Stephen. And you can go on and on and quote scriptures, and you can begin to get bold, and God can give you wisdom, and you can see God prosper you, but God's going to prosper you through this world system through other people and they enter into your answer to prayer. So you need to realize that when you're praying for another person, this is where intercessory prayer comes in. This is where standing in the gap comes in. That's not a time to sit there and pray a prayer of faith one time, believe that you receive and forget it. That's a time to intercede over something and begin to continue to just bathe the thing in prayer until you see a manifestation. There are different types of prayer. And we need to realize that a lot of people have been ignorant about that and because of it, they sit there and Satan has been hindering them through other people and they wonder, why isn't God doing something? God does it every time, amen? There's also another thing I believe that Christians need to be aware of is in the area of physical healing. There's a lot of people that pray for healing and they aren't seeing their healing manifest and they wonder, why isn't God doing something? And it's the fact that we are violating the laws of God. You're sowing to the flesh and you're of the flesh reaping corruption. There's a lot of people that are so obese and overweight that they've got back problems and then they come and ask somebody to pray for them, lay hands on them, see them healed of their back problems and they wonder why didn't it work. Y'all see what I'm saying? I'm not criticizing people. I'm not trying to make fun of you, but I'm saying that if you're sitting there carrying around all this extra weight out there, it's normal that you're going to have back problems. Don't go asking God to take the thing away until you say, Father, forgive me. I see where I'm wrong. Close the door on the devil and say, Father, I am going to start getting this weight off until it's gone. Take away my back problem. Now, I'll pray for a person like that. But a person that's going to continue to sow to his flesh, you're just... You're spitting in the wind trying to believe God for a healing in their life because they're sitting there doing something contrary. You know what? You need to wise up and realize some of the natural laws. Satan tempted Jesus and said, If you be the Son of God, cast yourself down off the pinnacle of this temple, for it is written, He shall give His, char- his angels charge over thee, and they shall bear thee up in their hands, left at any time you dash your foot against a stone. He quoted Scripture to Jesus, but did you know he misquoted it? Psalms chapter 91 says, For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands lest thou dash thy foot against the stone. Satan quoted it and said, He shall give his angels charge over thee. They shall bear thee up in their hands lest at any time thou dash thy foot against the stone. You see the difference there? The Lord didn't say it would work in any time under any circumstance. It won't work when you're tempting God, when you're sowing to the flesh. That's not what he said. He said he gives his angels charge over thee and they shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. And he said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. It was true. He could have fallen off that pinnacle and the angels would have borne him up, but he couldn't throw himself off and say, I just dare the Lord to catch me. That would have been tempting God. There's a lot of people that sit there and drink strychnine and sit there and say, I believe I can drink any deadly thing and it shall not harm me. You're going to be as dead as a hammer. Amen. It doesn't work that way. But if you were to drink it by mistake and find what you did, you could stand on that verse and it'll work. If you have found out that you've done, been sowing into the flesh in your body and you say, Father, I'm sorry, forgive me. You can be healed. I don't care what you've done. If you if put poison down yourself. But don't sit there and continue to put poison down yourself and expect God to heal you. Because you are allowing Satan to hinder your prayers. You're giving him place. You're selling your body over to Him by abusing it. Amen? And we need to use some wisdom in that area. You cannot abuse your body and sow to the flesh and expect God to answer your prayers. God will answer, but you won't see the manifestation of it because you just allowed Satan to come in and hinder it, and it will not be manifest. Amen? Praise God. And, brothers and sisters, there's a lot more. All we did was just barely get started on this. There's a lot of things. There's some wisdom that we need to use as a Christian and learn that we've got an enemy that's going about to hinder us, and if you don't wise up and get in the Word of God and start doing it, Satan's going to stop your prayers. Not God, but Satan's going to stop them. The Word of God is the only way to stop the devil. Jesus rebuked him and said, It is written. If you want to get rid of Satan's hindrances in your life, get in God's Word, and when you find that the Word of God says something, do it. Do what God's Word says. And as you act on the Word, Satan has no right or privilege in your life. It's just like that there's a, there's a safety zone. And as long as you're standing in that and standing on the Word, Satan can't come nigh you. He has no right. He has no dominion over you when you're standing in the Word. But if you get out of the Word, you start giving Satan place in your life. You start giving him dominion over you. Like the Scripture says in, Mark, in Romans chapter 6, verse 16, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves, servants to obey, his servants you are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. When you commit sin, you become the servant of the devil. You allow Satan to have dominion over you. And so you better withdraw your foot from it and get to where you're standing on God's Word so that Satan has no dominion against you. And like we talked about last night, the reason I live a holy life is not because I've got to do it to be accepted with God. I'm already accepted with God through Jesus. Amen? And I'm standing accepted in the Beloved. But it is very important to live a holy life because I don't want to give Satan a toehold in my life. I don't want to give him the right and the privilege to come in and do what he can against me because he comes for no other purpose except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. So I'm going to live a holy life, not to be accepted with God, but to destroy the devil and keep him from getting place in my life. Amen? That's a totally different attitude than what most people have had about it but that's the reason that we're living a holy life. I'm living it because I am not going to let Satan hinder my prayers. Also, it's pleasing to God. God is pleased when he sees you showing off and acting the way that you're supposed to, amen, as a Christian. Praise the Lord. He's pleased with his kids. And so we need to realize that. There's a lot more hindrances to prayer. If you'll seek them, I guarantee you God will begin to show you wisdom. I believe that there's some people here today that have probably been praying for things that if you've allowed God to speak to you through what's been said, you'll see why some of your prayers have been hindered. There's some husbands and wives here that you need to get some things straight today and you need to ask each other for for forgiveness because strife will kill. Strife will kill in a second. And brothers and sisters, you can't afford that luxury. You wouldn't allow cancer just to be living in your home. And you shouldn't allow strife. Strife is a lot deadlier. Strife is where cancer comes from. I have never, never, never seen a situation where a person had cancer that there was not a large amount of strife. That's my observation. I can't say that if you've got cancer it originated in strife but I have always seen the two connected every time and I believe that that is a godly principle. Even doctors will tell you today that if they could deal with emotional problems that they could stop 90. I think 96% of sickness is what they say stems from emotions. It's the simple fact that you see God made your body to operate in love and to joy and peace. And when it starts feeling hatred and strife and fear, those are supernatural forces that the body was never meant to function under. And your body begins to operate in stress. It begins to pump all kinds of poison through your body. Your cells, cancer, is basically the cells of your body going crazy and just destroying each other, eating them up. And it just simply comes because you have got out of operating what God intended you to be. And because of strife and because of fear and because of turmoil, things like this, your body is rebelling at it. You deal with the strife and stop it, cancer will stop. Amen? That's true. That's the truth. So you need to realize that those things are hindrances to your faith. And they're hindrances to your prayer. And you need to get rid of those things and start operating in faith. Let's stand up and have a word of prayer. We hope that your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. Remember, Andrew Womack Ministries operates a helpline that you can call for prayer and information at 719-635-1111. We have a ministry website at www.awmi.net and you can write the ministry at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs, 80934. Until next time, we pray that you will reach out by faith and receive everything that is yours through God's grace.